Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 5th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I have a couple of things to say before we start. First, I'm, I'm, I'm apologizing in advance if the quality of this broadcast doesn't turn out so well. The recording, we pray, will turn out well, and we will post it as soon as we finish this presentation. We lost our internet on Thursday morning. And it, it was a, um, a pretty bad storm here in Panama City, where we live. And I'm still waiting for the internet service provider to come and repair the line. They were um, called yesterday afternoon. And they promised they would be here between 1 and 5 this afternoon, but they're still not here. And and now I'm, I'm afraid it probably won't be until Tuesday. We have um, good mobile phone service. We have good mobile phones that also operate as a um, as Internet hotspots, and we're using them now. They usually work wonderfully. I've done many programs on them, but today and and yesterday they've been terrible. We've had bad weather here in Panama City. It's been very overcast. It's been very windy. The temperature today was probably 15 today, 15 degrees cooler than normal, and and it's still windy and overcast. And and I'm afraid that's probably affecting my signal. It's also affecting our weekend. What we had um, hoped to have pre-recorded tomorrow evening's program with Don Fox, which we're still planning on having, I've had two failed attempts to pre-record that program because of the poor internet connections, and and one was yesterday afternoon, and, and this morning we actually started a recording, and it was so bad that after about 15 minutes I gave up and held it off till tomorrow. I pray it goes well tomorrow. And we had planned to attend um, some events in New Orleans this weekend. I really did hope to do that. If I'd have pre-recorded the program with Don Fox, I would have automated its play tomorrow night, and, and we could be driving to New Orleans the first thing tomorrow morning. That was our original hope. And um, it, it's not working out so far. Now I have to stay here in Panama City tomorrow to do tomorrow night's program. And I don't know if I'm going to make it to New Orleans at all. We're still going to give it our best shot. We'll see how that works. And and that's sort of an impromptu trip. But it's for a a worthy cause. The defense of Southern history. Southern white history, which is being eradicated from New Orleans. We had hoped to lend support to that cause this weekend, and I don't know if we're going to make it because of our problems. Our um, our own programming has to come first. That we see is our obligation, and we're not going to change our priorities. So that's the way it is. This is Paul's first epistle to Timothy, part one. And we've subtitled this program, Yahshua Christ is God, and his gospel is for Israel. The idea behind that subtitle, it's a little, it's a little long. The idea behind that subtitle is that the Old Testament God 
and his people are the same as the New Testament God and his people. The covenant changes, but that's all that changes. And we will see that this evening as we, we begin to proceed through Paul's first epistle to Timothy. So now we are going to present Paul's first epistle to Timothy as we near the completion of a commentary on the epistles of Paul of Tarsus, which we had begun with the epistle to the Romans in the spring of 2014. This is now the 109th presentation in the series. It may be fitting that the pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus are presented last in order of Paul's epistles, as they are in most Bibles. However, one error that most Bibles make is not to count Hebrews amongst Paul's other epistles. Furthermore, Philemon belongs with Colossians, and it is not really a pastoral epistle in the sense of those which were written to Timothy and Titus. Going one step further, we have this we have decided to put both of the epistles to Timothy last in order here because we find it appropriate to present 2 Timothy at the very end of our presentation of Paul's epistles. Although 2 Timothy was not actually the last of Paul's epistles chronologically, when we do finally present to Timothy... We hope to make a full explanation of our reasons for that. If we had chosen to make our entire presentation in the order in which Paul wrote his epistles, 1 Timothy would follow Titus, and it in turn would be followed by 2 Corinthians. 2 Timothy would come later, as Paul was under house arrest in Rome when it was written. Paul had apparently written his first epistle to the Corinthians not long before he left Ephesus in what was most likely the spring of 56 AD, which we had explained in part three of our presentation of the first epistle to the Corinthians, where we discussed our reasoning for that chronology. Paul had initially planned on going to Achaia, by way of Macedonia, and spending the winter in Corinth, as he wrote in chapter 16 of that epistle, 1 Corinthians. But sometime during the initial stage of his travels, Paul decided instead to winter in Nicopolis, which is in Epirus and northwest of Corinth. As we had explained earlier in the series, such as in the opening segment of our commentary on the epistle to Titus. Paul must have received a letter from Corinth in answer to the epistle which we know as 1 Corinthians. And then he decided to delay going to Corinth and spent the subsequent winter at Nicopolis instead. He gave his reasons for that decision in the opening chapters of 2 Corinthians which was written as he wintered in Nicopolis, and both Titus and Timothy were with him. Traveling from Macedonia, I'm sorry, traveling to Macedonia from Ephesus, when Paul arrived in the Troad, he had not found Titus, whom he had expected to find. 
but rather he found that Titus had gone to Crete to settle some problems there. So Paul wrote a letter which we now have as the epistle to Titus from the Troad to Titus in Crete, giving him advice and asking him to meet him for the winter in Nicopolis. But Titus caught up to Paul in Macedonia instead, which we learn from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And then he must have accompanied Paul to Nicopolis, as he is there with him when 2 Corinthians is written. Titus later takes that epistle ahead of Paul to deliver it to the Corinthians before Paul's planned visit there in the early spring of 57 AD. In the meantime, Paul must have also written this epistle to Timothy during the same journey, either upon arriving in the Troad where he had written to Titus, or, more likely, as he passed through Macedonia shortly thereafter. In the opening verses of 1 Timothy, Paul states that just as I, traveling into Macedonia, had summoned you to remain in Ephesus, in Ephesus, I'm sorry. Then when Paul writes to Corinthians from Nicopolis the following winter, Timothy is there with both Paul and Titus. But Paul must not have planned this. Rather, here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 13, Paul wrote, Until I come, you attend to the reading, the exhortation, the teaching, meaning that Paul expected to visit Timothy in Ephesus before seeing him again, where he indicates that he shall return to Ephesus and that Timothy should continue teaching there until his arrival. So, for some unknown reason, Timothy departed from Ephesus, contrary to Paul's instructions in this epistle, and met up with Paul in Nicopolis. However, from what letters we now have available, Paul never asked Timothy to join him, like he had specifically asked Titus. Later, where Paul wrote an epistle to the Ephesians from Rome, Timothy was not yet with him, is not mentioned in that letter, and therefore we may never have the answer. We can only imagine that because Timothy was never criticized by Paul, and because he was later associated by Paul with his ministry, when Paul wrote his last couple of prison letters from Rome, which are Philippians and Colossians, that Timothy must have been compelled to leave Ephesus for some reason, rather than merely having abandoned his assignment there. In any event, in this epistle, Paul asked him to remain in Ephesus, and he did not. The account described in Acts chapter 20 indicates that Timothy, who was in Nicopolis with Paul for the winter of 56 to 57 AD, where we read from Acts chapter 20 verse 1, and after the cessation of the tumult, that's in reference to the troubles 
with the silversmiths in Acts chapter 19 that happened in Ephesus, and after the cessation of the tumult, Paul sending after and encouraging the students, saluting them, departed to go into Macedonia. And at that time he stopped in the Troad, looking for Titus and writing that epistle to Titus. And passing through those parts, meaning those parts of Macedonia, during which he must have written this first epistle to Timothy. And encouraging them with many words, he went into Greece. Passing from Macedonia to Greece, Paul was going from Macedonia into Nicopolis, which is in Epirus in Greece, south of Macedonia, but north of Achaia and Corinth. And he spent two months in Nicopolis, wintering, before he went on to Corinth for his final visit there. So, encouraging them with many words, he went into Greece, and spending three months, which must count the two-month winter in Nicopolis of Epirus, and the last visit to Corinth, of which nothing is known, there being a plot against him by the Judeans, being about to set sail for Syria, he became knowledgeable for which to return through Macedonia. And there followed along with him Sopatris of Purisperoia and the Thessalonians Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and the Asians Tuchikos and Trophimus. And these going ahead waited for us in the Troad. But we and by us and we, Luke is referring to himself and his companions. Luke stayed in Philippi for most of his time. But we sailed out from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and we came to them, meaning Paul and his company, in the Troad after five days, where we spent seven days. After these seven days... Luke indicates that the entire group set sail together to Miletus and eventually to Caesarea in Palestine, from which place they traveled on to Jerusalem. As we saw while presenting Hebrews chapter 13 here recently, where Paul announced the release of Timothy, he must have been arrested with Paul in Jerusalem and set free sometime before Paul was sent in bonds to Rome. Therefore, at which time Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. Therefore, we can we can only conclude that for some unknown reason, Timothy was forced to leave Ephesus early. So Paul, traveling to Jerusalem, but wanting to address the Ephesians, which is described later in Acts chapter 20, goes to nearby Miletus instead of to Ephesus and sends for the elders of the Ephesians. And Luke wrote only that we came into Miletus for Paul decided to sail past Ephesus in order that it would not happen for him to waste time in Asia for he hastened if it would be possible for him to be in Jerusalem at the day of the Pentecost. And apparently, it was not the Christians in Ephesus for whom Paul would waste time. 
he sent for them to be, come meet him in Miletus. But the pagans and others who were seeking to cause trouble for him, as they had in the past in Acts chapter 19. Timothy must have remained with Paul throughout this entire time until they were arrested together and Timothy was later released. So our assertion is that even though in later in 1 Timothy, in this first epistle to Timothy, Paul encouraged Timothy to remain in Ephesus, for some reason they couldn't do so, and Timothy departed Ephesus and went to Paul in Nicopolis. Then, as the two traveled together and wanted to see the Christians of Ephesus, they avoided Ephesus altogether, passed it up, stopped in Miletus, sent for the Christians to meet them there. Paul addressed the Christians in Miletus and went on to Palestine, where he was arrested in Jerusalem. The Apostle Timothy is often referred to as Timotheus, and sometimes as Timothy, in the King James Version. And he first appears in Scripture in Acts chapter 16, where Paul is in Lycaonia. There we learn that he was the son of a Judean mother and a Greek father. And it is described that Paul had taken him and circumcised him on account of the Judeans who were in those places, as Luke recorded. All of Paul's surviving epistles, all of them, had been written some time later, beginning from when Paul was in Corinth, as it is described in Acts chapter 18. That's where he wrote the first of his surviving epistles, which are the first two epistles to the Thessalonians. Whether Paul had realized that for Judeans, circumcision was done away with, along with the ceremonies and rituals of the law, before he circumcised Timothy, that can be argued, we really can't tell. The dispute of Acts chapter 15 did not include Judeans, but only those from among the nations who were coming to Christ. Later on, Paul certainly did teach that Judean children born to Christian parents, Judean Christian parents, should not be circumcised or bound to the Mosaic Law, which is especially clear in his epistle to the Galatians, and in his final discourse with the Apostle James, in Acts chapter 21, where in verse 21, James and those who are with him are recorded as having said to Paul of the people in Jerusalem, and they are informed concerning you, that you teach departure from Moses for the Judeans throughout all the nations, saying for them not to circumcise the children nor walk in the customs. So we really do not know why Paul, with any certainty, why Paul may have had Timothy circumcised, except that it being on account of the Judeans who were in those places. Perhaps it was so that like Paul had professed himself to be, Timothy could also be as a Judean to the Judeans, as Paul had later written in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse 20. And I became as a Judean to the Judeans, that I would gain Judeans. To those subject to law as subject to law, not being subject to law myself, 
that I would gain those subject to law. Being circumcised, Timothy would have had more influence spreading the gospel amongst the Judeans of Anatolia. This is also the reason suggested by several of the early Christian writers, who also wondered about this same thing, including Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Cyprian, that Paul's act of circumcising Timothy was one of accommodation to the Judeans. A couple of years later, Titus would not be compelled to be circumcised, as Paul explained in Galatians chapter 2. However, Titus was a Greek on both sides of his genealogy, while Timothy had a Judean mother. Here we have called Timothy an apostle, and previously we called Titus an apostle. Even though the title apostle was never used in scripture of either Timothy or Titus, In our commentary on Titus, we had at times considered him to be an apostle, in a secondary sense of the word. Of course, we still do. Even though they were not apostles with Christ, but they were certainly apostles of the gospel of Christ, standing in the place of Paul wherever Paul had sent them, which is fully evident from these epistles. In this same sense, Other men who were early converts, such as Barnabas, were also called apostles in early Christian writings. In Acts chapter 4, we see that Barnabas was from Cyprus, and later it is apparent that he is related by blood to the apostle Mark. While Mark seems to have been among the early disciples of Christ, he also was not one of the original twelve, but he is also considered an apostle. About the Greek text to 1 Timothy, and this is basically the close of our opening notes on the epistle, at the time of the translation of the Christogenian New Testament, which relied on the 27th edition of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece, and it still does, it hasn't been updated yet, that would be a time-consuming task that we hope to do one day. The earliest manuscript evidence for the first epistle to Timothy was found in the 4th century Codex Sinaiticus. The 5th century codices Alexandrinus and Ephraimisiri, the 5th century codices Furianus and Vaticanus 2061, the Codex Vaticanus Grece, and the 6th century codices Claromontanus and Coislinianus, and two unnamed manuscripts both esteemed to be about the 6th century, which are numbered 0241, which contains parts of chapters 3 and 4, and 0285, which has the first 13 verses of chapter 1. Now, quite recently, from another papyrus that has been discovered, which is designated now as P133, from the Oxyrhynchus papyri that had been found in Egypt. It is dated to the 3rd century and is said to contain verses from 1 Timothy 3.13 through 1 Timothy 4.8. We do not have access to the actual text of Papyrus 133, 
but we now know that it exists. Additionally, Paul's first epistle to Timothy is mentioned in the late 2nd century Muratorian canon. And it was cited or mentioned by Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria, who are also both of the late 2nd century. It was cited by Tertullian, Origen, and Cyprian, all of whom wrote in the early half of the 3rd century. But just like Titus and others who first followed the original Apostles of Christ, so far as we have seen, none of the early Christian writers add anything to our knowledge of Timothy beyond what we already have in the book of Acts or in Paul's epistles. With this, we shall begin our presentation and commentary on the text of 1 Timothy. Paul, an ambassador of Yahshua Christ, by a mandate of Yahweh our Savior, God our Savior, even Christ Yahshua our hope. The 4th century Codex Sinaiticus has promise rather than mandate, the two words being very similar, epigelia rather than epitage. And epitage may also have been rendered as a command. It is mandate here. Reading command or mandate according to the other manuscripts, it is consistent with the context of the chapter as it proceeds, especially in verses 5 and 18, and we will discuss that later when we get to verse 18. Throughout these epistles of Paul, where he mentions both God and Christ, we see a construct which is called a Hebrew parallelism, even if it is not a grammatical Greek hendiatis. A Greek hendiatis is a Greek language grammatical construct which signifies that two nouns or two different descriptions belong to the same subject where the Hebrew parallelism can nevertheless exist the Hebrew parallelism is a pair of words or even a pair of sentences or even a pair of paragraphs that both describe the same object the same events a large-scale Hebrew parallelism exists for instance in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, where Genesis chapter 10 describes the families descended from Noah. Genesis chapter 11 describes their dispersion. But if you read Genesis chapter 10 closely, you'll see that Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 are concurrent. They're not consecutive chronologically. The same is true of Ezekiel chapter 27, chapter 28, where we see an oracle against the king of Tyre and an oracle against the prince of Tyre that are both describing basically the same individual even though a lot of I should call them uninspired interpreters of scripture maybe that's not proper maybe simply not as informed or uninformed interpreters of scripture see those as two different individuals and build false doctrines upon that. 
Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 are a parallelism where we see the exact same events, the, the prophetic events of the end time prophesied two different ways. One way in Ezekiel 38, another way in Ezekiel 39. They're both describing the same events. It's not two consecutive events. There's a lot of that in scripture, especially in prophecy. And they are all parallelisms. There's a lot of smaller parallelisms where different descriptions given consecutively are really discussing the same objects. We see this as a parallelism where it says Yahweh our Savior and Christ Yahshua our hope. For that reason we don't translate the word and as and. The word for and is and. We translate it as even. Because Paul certainly believed as we will see later in this chapter that Yahweh God is Christ and that Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God. So Paul says here in the Greek God our Savior but in the Gospel of Matthew we we read of Mary in reference to the Christ child that she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus or Yahshua which means Yahweh saves or Yahweh Savior for he shall save his people from their sins. Yet Yahweh had made repeated statements in the prophets that he was the Savior of Israel and that he was the only Savior of Israel. The only Savior. For example, in Isaiah chapter 49, where he said that I, Yahweh, and thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Then, earlier in Isaiah chapter 43, he said, I, even I, am Yahweh. And besides me, there is no Savior. Then in Hosea chapter 13, he spoke likewise. And he said, Yet I am Yahweh thy God from the land of Egypt, meaning that he was the same God that brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. Therefore, to translate the Greek word kahi, in such instances, we use even as a conjunction rather than and. And by doing so, we show our belief that Paul is using parallelisms. And we show our belief, as Paul also did, that Yahshua Christ is God. The King James Version also translates the Greek conjunction kahi as even on frequent occasions in other contexts. Four times in the Gospel of John, and nine times in the Epistle to the Romans, for example. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says of Christ that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as the King James Version reads the passage. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in that same version, we read where he, where Paul also speaks of Christ, and he says... And without controversy, meaning you can't argue this, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles or the nations, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. God 
without controversy, God was manifest in flesh. All those who doubt that Jesus Christ is God, they are antichrists. Paul continues his address to Timothy, or to Timotheus, purely bred child in the faith, favor, mercy, peace from Father Yahweh and Yahshua Christ our Prince. The majority text has God our Father instead of Father God, right? In Titus chapter 1 verse 4, Paul called the apostle a purely bred child according to common belief. And we explain that Titus, being a Greek, would not know whether he was truly a child of Abraham, except by the common knowledge of Greek origins, available from the historians of the time. Here Paul addresses Timothy in much the same way, and he was writing this epistle not long after he had written that epistle to Titus. Quite like they did at Titus 1.4, Here in 1 Timothy, the translators of the King James Version have taken the phrase which literally means purely bred child and has translated it as my own son. The Greek of either passage has no such pronoun as my and no word which properly means own. The word which we express as purely bred is genesius which is defined by Liddell and Scott to mean of or belonging to the race, lawfully begotten, legitimate, as opposed to nathus, or bastard. The word genesius is a derivative from the word genos, which is primarily a race, stock, or family, according to that same source. We may imagine a context, as we said before, whereby Genesius can mean own in relation to a particular race or of children descending from a common parentage, such as one of my own children, to mean one of my actual descendants. But this is not the case here, since there is no pronoun which would be the least component necessary to create such a context. We see that Genesius is an antonym for Nathus, which is bastard. The Greeks would not have considered Titus a bastard. Although the Hebrews, the true Israelites in Judea, may have held all Greeks under such a suspicion, since they did not maintain their true genealogies. However, Timothy, being of a Judean mother and a Greek father, may have been considered a bastard by either side, in spite of the fact that the Roman law of the time ostensibly permitted intermarriage between Judeans and Romans. We know that because several notable Romans of the period were indeed married to Judeans. So here we believe that, as in Titus, Paul is assuring Timothy that in spite of the worldly standards... He is a purely bred child according to the faith of Yahshua Christ. This does not dismiss the fact of his race. Rather, it upholds the necessity of being a genuine member of the race, meaning the race of the ancient children of Israel. Being of both Judean and Greek lineage, Timothy was most certainly an Israelite on each side of his family. The Danan and Dorian Greeks 
as well as some of the others, were descended from Israelites of the pre-captivity dispersions, mainly of the tribes of Dan and Manasseh, and many of the Judeans were Israelites of the Babylonian captivity of Judah. In Romans chapter 4, Paul had explained that the promises were certain to all of the seed of Abraham, whether they were of the nations of those early dispersions, or the Israelites from among the Judeans. Continuing with Paul, he goes to the purpose of this epistle, and he says, Just as I, traveling into Macedonia, had summoned you to remain in Ephesus, that you should command some not to teach errors, nor give heed to myths and endless genealogies, which afford disputes, rather than management of the family of Yahweh, which is by faith. And the word translated as to teach errors here is heterodidascalio. Didascalio means to teach. Hetero means other. And it is literally to teach differently. It can be maintained that to teach differently from Scripture certainly is to teach errors. The concepts are one and the same. The reference to myths and endless genealogies is a reference to the pagan literature of the time. The pagan Greek writers produced endless fables describing their descent from the pagan gods and the dalliances which those gods were said to have had with earthly women. According to Liddell and Scott, the word oikonomia is literally the management of a household or family. In certain contexts, and we'll get back to the pagan gods shortly and the genealogies, in certain contexts, referring to the word oikonomia, it can be used generically to mean administration. We get our word economy from it. It can be used generically of a plan or a dispensation. Paul used the term in a generic manner, speaking of the oikonomia of times, periods of time. In Ephesians chapter 1, but it is primarily the stewardship of a household or family. And where the word is used by itself, we cannot imagine that it is simply used in the generic sense. Paul used the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where the King James Version has merely dispensation. And then it adds the words of the gospel into the text. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just a few verses later, Paul identified his readers, who were Dorian Greeks, as having been among the descendants of the Israelites of the Exodus. In that same chapter, Paul identified the pagan nations of Europe as Israel according to the flesh. He makes similar identifications in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 4, speaking of Romans, and in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, speaking of the Galatahi, who are elsewhere called Celts and Germans by the historians of the time. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul spoke of the family of the faith, 
using the Greek word oikaios, which means of the house. Later in that same chapter, he spoke of the Israel of God, because the Israel in Palestine was not of God, as Christ had told them that they were not his sheep, and as Christ had warned us in his revelation that they were pretending to be of Judah, but they were not of Judah. In fact, ancient history and scripture reveal for us that they were of Esau and not of Judah. But ancient history and scripture also reveal that the Israel of God was spread abroad from ancient times and up through the Babylonian and Assyrian captivities. These are the people whom the prophets inform us that the gospel was to be taken. Yahshua Christ attested that he had come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in places in the Old Testament, such as Ezekiel chapter 34, for instance, those sheep are described as the ancient Israelites who had wandered over every mountain. In Jeremiah chapter 31, the promise of a new covenant is for the house or family of Israel and the house or family of Judah. In Amos 3.2, Yahweh declared to the children of Israel that you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. And throughout the writings of the prophets, that same family of Israel were promised salvation, redemption, mercy, grace, and deliverance from that punishment. Paul quoted that same promise in Jeremiah chapter 31 in his epistle to the Hebrews. And he said in Acts chapter 26 that the hope of Israel belonged to the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. As he said in Romans that the promise is certain to all of the seed, the nations which had come from the loins of Abraham. So where Paul used the term oigonomia in reference to people, or where the ancient children of Israel fit into the description Paul has made, because they are the subject of the plan, or the dispensation of Yahweh God, in all of his promises in the Old Testament prophets. The term must be translated in that manner as it refers to them. We cannot imagine that God made a set of promises for one family, and then where a term describing a family is used as the promises are fulfilled in Christ, that it refers to something other than that family. That's just ridiculous. As it says in the Gospel of Luke, Christ came to fulfill the promises of mercy made unto the fathers, the fathers of that family, to keep the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to deliver the true children of Israel from their enemies, enemies which included the Jews of the time, since they were actually Edomites and Canaanites, and as Paul had said elsewhere, they were contrary to all men. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 17, Paul says that he had been entrusted with the management of a family, and that describes the purpose of his ministry. Then in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2, he says that he had been given management 
of the family of the favor of Yahweh. And the children of Israel are promised that favor throughout the law and the prophets which Christ had come to fulfill. Later, in that same chapter of Ephesians, Paul says that his mission is to enlighten all concerning the management of the household of the mystery which was concealed from the ages by Yahweh. Because in their punishment, the scattered children of Israel were to be blind and sit in darkness as it is written in the prophecies of Isaiah where Yahweh says of the children of Israel, Who is blind but my servant? They were to be not my people, as Yahweh announced in Hosea, but then they were to be called the sons of the living God, as he promised them reconciliation. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul described himself as a servant in accordance with the administration of the household of Yahweh, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of Yahweh. Since the gospel was being brought to the nations of scattered Israel in fulfillment of the same promises in the Old Testament prophets. Finally, here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul speaks of the management of the family of Yahweh which is by faith. And it says of the children of Israel in Habakkuk chapter 2 that because the law had failed, the just shall live by faith. And as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 4, that the offspring of Abraham, who were of the faith of Abraham, would receive the promises of God. And not merely the offspring of Abraham, which had kept the law. These are not offspring with a belief, but rather, these are the offspring in which Abraham believed. And Abraham believed that they would come from his own loins. So in respect of all this, Paul continues, and he says, Now the result of that command is love from a clean heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned. Faith not faked. When Paul was troubled in Ephesus shortly before writing this epistle, the source of his problems were the pagans, who profited from the worship of Artemis. The King James Version has Diana. Likewise, when Paul wrote his epistle to the Ephesians a couple of years after this, he speaks to them as former pagans coming to Christ, where he speaks of their redemption and the departure from their former practices, informing them that they are no longer strangers and sojourners, meaning that they had been put out of their ancient patrimony, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of Yahweh, upon their reconciliation. So here also, speaking of the management of the household of God, the myths and endless genealogies which he mentions cannot have anything to do with the genealogies of the Old Testament, where Paul wrote in Ephesians assuring them that they were preordained according to the purpose of the will of God, that they had redemption and the dismissal of sins in Christ, 
and that they were members of the household of God, which was built on the prophets as well as the apostles. We have sufficient proof that Paul believed these people to be among the scattered Israelites who had been promised all of these things in the Old Testament prophets. With the knowledge of the fact that these Ephesians were truly children of Abraham, as Paul also informed them in chapter 2 of that epistle, that they were the nations in the flesh. Referring to the nations of the promise to Abraham that Paul describes in Romans chapter 4. The vain genealogies which he refers to here must be the pagan genealogies. Here is one example of such a genealogy from the Loeb Classical Library translation of Pausanias by William Jones, Book 2, Paragraph 31, Part 4, or Chapter 31, Paragraph 4. In a description of Troizane, a town in the northeast Peloponnesus, Pausanias wrote, Near the theater, a temple of Artemis Lycaea, which means wolfish or wolf-like, was made by Hippolytus. About this surname, I could learn nothing from the local guides, but I gathered that either Hippolytus destroyed wolves that were ravaging the land of Troizane, or else that Lycia is a surname of Artemis among the Amazons, from whom he was descended through his mother. Perhaps there may be another explanation that I am not aware of. The stone in front of the temple, called the Sacred Stone, they, ha- they say is that on which nine men of Troizane once purified Orestes from the stain of matricide. And of course... Orestes, after he slew his mother, was wandering. He was actually driven around Greece by demons. And he was purified of his, the blood of his mother in many different ways. Didn't do him really any good. The reference to Orestes was from the accounts following the Trojan War, where his mother Agamemnon, the leader of the Danans, I'm sorry, his father, Agamemnon, the leader of the Danans, had been slain by his mother, Clytemnestra, after his return home to Greece. So Agamemnon, the great chief of the Danans, returns home to his wife, and she kills him. And there's a lot more to that story, but I don't need to repeat it here. Agamemnon's only son, Orestes, avenging his father, had therefore killed his own mother, The tale was a subject of the tragic poets of the 5th century B.C. And like Orestes, Hippolytus was also the title character of a play by the tragic poet Euripides. The tale of Hippolytus was set in Troizane, and one version of the story of his genealogy has it that Ahithra, the daughter of the king of Troizane and a descendant of the fictional Amazons, had slept with both the king of Athens, and the Greek god Poseidon on the same night. As a consequence of her whoring around, she became pregnant with Theseus, and Theseus was one of the legendary founder heroes of ancient Athens. 
Other such founder heroes of the various tribes of the Greeks are Heracles, Danos, Cadmus, and Perseus, all of whom were imagined to have various pagan gods in their lineage. We see this as a combination of ancestor worship and the worship of idols. That's how I see this. All of these legendary founder heroes were also imagined to have lived not very long before the Trojan War. The Greek poets literally had endless accounts of such genealogies, and the people of the various tribes of the Greeks held them in esteem, celebrating their origins in fables that were simply not true. As we had discussed at length in our presentation of the epistle to Titus, Paul called his companion a purely bred child according to common belief, and told him to avoid foolish inquiries and genealogies, and strifes and quarrels relating to law, for they are unprofitable in vain. Now here in relation to a very similar statement to Timothy, Paul assures that the result of that command is love, from a clean heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned. We can imagine that in a different way, we face the same challenges today which Titus, a Greek, and Timothy, a half-Greek and half-Judean, had faced. Each of these men, being Greek or partly Greek, were apparent descendants of the children of Israel, who were being called to reconciliation in Christ, and that should be good enough for a Christian. Without debating over whether one branch of the race is any better than any other branch, we must understand through the words of the prophets, the classical histories, and the teachings of the apostles, that the word of Yahweh our God is true, and that we are indeed the children of Israel, whether we be Judean, or Greek, or Roman, or Galatahi, or Scythian, or of course, in modern times, since none of those peoples exist in history any longer, Germans, or English, or Poles, or Italians, or Norwegians, if we're apparently of the race, then we should be apparently acceptable. From this standpoint, Christians can show love for one another rather than argue with and vex and exalt themselves over one another. As Paul wrote to Titus, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. To a bastard all men are bastards, but the children of Yahweh must judge their fellow man by their fruits. Paul continues by speaking of these things in relation to the law, from which some, having failed, have turned to talking vainly, wishing to be teachers of the law, understanding neither the things they speak nor concerning things which they strongly maintain. At this early time, from the words of Paul, 
It is evident that there were many who did not realize that the fulfillment of the gospel was the announcement of reconciliation in Christ and the forgiveness of sins to the nations which had descended from the scattered Israelites of antiquity. So instead men set to quarrels and strivings about the law, not truly understanding the purpose and message of the gospel. We must consider these things when we see beliefs amongst the early Christian writers that are contrary to what Paul had written, that these errors were being spread among Christians at an early time. Universalism was certainly one of those errors because early men did not understand what Paul had written as Peter had warned. And they didn't understand the history and the prophets. Paul's words here do not mean that the biblical genealogies and the promises to the twelve tribes of Israel had become void. They maintain the importance of those things, as Paul also upheld them throughout his epistles. For instance, in Acts chapter 26, as many as three years after writing these epistles to Titus and Timothy, Paul proclaimed that the hope in Christ was for the twelve tribes of Israel. And tribes can only be reckoned by genealogy. In Romans chapter 4, a year after writing these epistles to Titus and Timothy, Paul maintained that the promises to Abraham were certain to all of the seed of Abraham. And the promise that his seed would become many nations had already been fulfilled in the manner in which it was spoken. So shall thy seed be. Paul's ministry was fulfilled by bringing the gospel of Christ to those very nations. Neither does the law become void. As Christ himself had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And here Paul acknowledges that, where he says, yet we know that the law is good if one would use it lawfully. The supposed teachers of the law were evidently not using it lawfully. We cannot know every aspect of error which Paul may have been referring to. But we do know a few things from the writings of both early Jews and early Greeks. For instance, Cyrus, the king of Persia, was considered a mule, a bastard, by the Greek historian Herodotus, because his mother was a Mede, but his father was a Persian. Yet in Isaiah, Yahweh referred to Cyrus as his shepherd and his anointed, so he could hardly have been a bastard. In truth, both Medes and Persians were descended from Noah and were also among the ancient children of God, so they could not be bastards. On the other hand, the other extreme, the Judeans had admitted all of the Edomites and Canaanites, circumcising them and baptizing them and considering them to be Israelites, as Josephus details in Antiquities Book 13. But the Edomites and Canaanites were considered bastards by the law of God and could never be accepted into the body of Christ. So in these respects, the confusion of men would cause strivings over genealogy and corruptions in interpretations of the law. As Christ said, by their fruits you shall know them. Therefore Paul says that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Since the Pharisees and others had abused the law, Paul continues in this regard, and he says, Knowing this, that the law is not laid down for righteous, but for lawless and unruly, 
impious and wrongful, unholy and profane, patricidal and matricidal, murderous, fornicating, homosexual, kidnapping, lying, falsely swearing men, along with anything else which is contrary to sound instruction, according to the good message of the honor of the blessed Yahweh, which I had been entrusted with. Not that others were not entrusted with it. Paul had written in Galatians chapter 5, But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Ostensibly, because one led by the Spirit puts away the deeds of the flesh, which he says there are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Here Paul lists as three distinct items, three items which we may perceive as being the same. And where the King James Version reads verse 9 to say in part, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, where we have patricidal, matricidal, and murderers. And Paul seems to be repeating himself, but perhaps he means something else, besides the actual killing of one's parents, where he speaks of patricide and matricide. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul speaks of women who had raised obedient and faithful children, and he says, And if any widow has a child or grandchild, they must first learn piety at home, and to return compensation to their ancestors, for this is acceptable before Yahweh. We may say that perhaps when one refuses to learn piety, it is tantamount to the murder of one's ancestors. Since refusing to obey one's God, one is denying one's own ancestors. But if we raise faithful children, in that way we return compensation to our ancestors. Saying profane here, which is the Greek word bebelos, Paul refers to those who would make themselves common, as the fornicating Esau was called a profane man in Hebrews, not maintaining himself separately from the other races, or the cursed people. The word homosexual, in our translation of verse 10 here, is from the Greek word arsenokoites, which describes men participating in the act of coitus, the sex act, with other men. There are modern-day sodomites who claim that arsenokoites referred to sexual acts between men and boys, but just the opposite is true. Even to the rather libertarian pagan Greeks, such acts between mature men were unacceptable and that is the word which was used to describe them, arsenokoites. While other terms, such as pahiderastia, or what we would say was pederasty, 
were used to describe sexual relationships between men and boys. In Euripides, Cyclops, lines 583 and 584, the title character is portrayed as exclaiming that with this Ganymede here, he's calling a certain young man a Ganymede, using Ganymede as sort of an adjective when it's a proper name, with this Ganymede here, I shall go off to bed with greater glory than with the graces, and somehow I take more pleasure in boys than with women. To the ancient Greeks, men with boy lovers were acceptable, but men with adult male lovers were not. Ganymede was a Trojan youth, the son of Tros, the son of Darda, and the daughter of the river god, Calero, in another vain genealogy, who was said to be taken up to Olympus to serve as a cupbearer and boy lover to Zeus. It is not a coincidence that one of the moons of Jupiter were named for Ganymede, speaking of the planet. According to Liddell and Scott, citing the Palatine Anthology, the later variant Greek form, arenokoites, the S was dropped, was used to designate a sodomite in the line it has been translated, you need fear neither barbarian nor men that share the bed of other males. And that whole phrase, men that share the bed of other males, is from that word, arenokoites, or arsenokoites. We would rather use the term sodomite, but in order that the meaning of the word, arsenokoites, as it was used by Paul, is fully expressed in our own modern vernacular, we must translate it as homosexual, and Christians should condemn any sort of homosexuality, whether it include men or boys, because the word doesn't make a distinction of age. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul used the term for fornication in a sense of race mixing, where he used the verb porneo, in reference to the events of Numbers chapter 25, where the men of Israel were described as having begun to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Paul called that fornication. So here we see that two sins, fornication and homosexuality, or sodomy, are just as terrible as patricide, matricide, and murder. And when you commit them, you may as well be committing patricide and matricide because you are not honoring your ancestors. Kidnapping here, andropodistes, is literally men-stealing or also slave-dealing, as the word was used in the classics. The children of Israel were chastised for doing such things by the prophets, and especially the Tyrians in Joel chapter 3. The Phoenicians were famous for such behavior, from as early as Homer's Iliad and Odyssey and Herodotus's histories, which are both from a time not much later than Joel. Slavery, as we shall see even here in this epistle to Timothy, was an accepted fact of life in the ancient world, and also amongst Christians. 
However, while there were many ways by which men became slaves, even voluntarily, as we may see in the parable of the prodigal son, the act of stealing men into slavery is certainly sinful. Today we do it with debt and usury. And corporatism. Where Paul says in verse 10, along with anything else, for which the King James Version has, if there be any other thing, he could certainly have added to the list if he so chose to do. And therefore the literal meaning of the Greek phrase, which is, and if anything other, is not necessarily the correct interpretation. So we have, along with anything else. With certainty, the translation here is idiomatically proper. And Paul made a similar statement in Romans chapter 13, verse 9, where giving a list of commandments that Christians should not transgress, he said, and any other commandment is summarized in this, to wit, you shall love him near to you as yourself. It is not as though Paul did not know there were other commandments, but after giving a list of important ones, he also wanted to refer to all of the other commandments, whatever was left. He continues in verse 12, I have gratitude to him strengthening me, to Christ Yahshua our Prince, because he has regarded me trustworthy, being ordained to a ministry, that before time, being a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man, but I have been shown mercy, because being ignorant, I acted in disbelief. And here Paul displays his own humility, where he does not illustrate the sins of others from a position of self-righteousness, but is rather quick to admit that he was also a sinner, and nevertheless had received the mercy of God. Paul does this, admitting his sin, in spite of the fact that when he was persecuting early Christians, he thought he was doing right by defending traditions against a new and heretical sect. Only later did he realize that he acted in ignorance, that Judaism was the heresy, and that Christ was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And with that, he realized that he was the sinner. The concept that Christ in the essence of the Holy Spirit, strengthens Christians to face their challenges, is mentioned frequently by Paul. He had closed his epistle to the Romans with that same concept where he said, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. And likewise, he wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love toward one another and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Saying these things, Paul is once again teaching the fulfillment of promises in Scripture, which were made to the children of Israel. This concept 
reflects the fulfillment of the word of Yahweh in Deuteronomy chapter 30, where it says, And it shall come to pass, when all these things, all the curses of disobedience, are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh thy God has driven thee, and shalt return unto Yahweh thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thy heart and all thy soul, that then Yahweh thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations, where Yahweh thy God has scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out to the outmost parts of heaven, from thence will Yahweh thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And Yahweh thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good, and multiply thee above thy fathers. And Yahweh thy God will circumcise thine heart, and the heart of thy seed, to love Yahweh thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, that thou may live. And Yahweh thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies, and on them that hate thee, which persecuted thee. These are the people to whom Paul had brought the gospel of Christ. The people of the Old Testament kingdom that were with Yahweh, that went into a state of sin and rebellion, that were driven out into all the nations that became themselves nations and companies of nations, according to the promises of the prophets. And now Paul is bringing them the gospel of reconciliation so that they could turn to obedience in Christ so that this prophecy would be fulfilled. And Yahweh thy God will circumcise thy heart. And Yahweh thy God will establish thee. That's what Paul is teaching wherever he says that. The fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 30 among the scattered children of Israel continuing with verse 14 yet the favor of our prince meaning the favor on Paul was exceedingly abundant along with the faith and love which is in Christ Yahshua Paul is describing the grace and mercy which he had received as a model for other sinners that they can also repent and receive the favor of God even if they were murderers, sodomites or fornicators as the word of Yahweh says in the closing verses of Micah chapter 7 who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage he retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy he will turn again he will have compassion upon us he will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old and in this same manner Paul continues Trustworthy is this saying, 
and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Yahshua came into the society to deliver wrongdoers of which I am first. But for this reason have I been shown mercy in order that first by me would Christ Yahshua exhibit all forbearance for a pattern of those who are going to believe on him unto eternal life. Paul uses the phrase pistos hologos here, or trustworthy is this saying. Three times in this epistle, once in Second Timothy and once in Titus, but nowhere else. In chapter 4 of this epistle, he repeats the entire formula. Trustworthy is this saying, and worthy of all acceptance. There are some fools who believe that Christ came only to forgive past sins, and they are, in part, deceived by a poor translation in the King James Version of Romans 3.25, where it says, in part, that the propitiation of of Yahweh in Christ is for the remission of sins that are past but we are we are rather certain that the word which is translated as past there instead means forthcoming as we had explained in, at great length in our presentation of Romans chapter 3 given here just over three years ago The context of Paul's discourse is the plan of God from the beginning of the world, since Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So we translate the passage to read, But now, apart from the law, the justice of Yahweh is made known, as he attested by the law and the prophets. But justice of Yahweh through the faith of Yahshua Christ, for all of those who are believing, for there is no distinction, for all have done wrong and fallen short, of the honor of Yahweh, being freely accepted by his favor through the redemption that is at the hands of Christ Yahshua, whom Yahweh set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood, for a display of justice, of his justice, by means of the pretermission of forthcoming errors, meaning errors foreseen from the beginning of the world. By the tolerance of Yahweh, for the display of his justice in the present time, for he is just and accepting of him that is from the faith of Yahshua. (laughs) So here, where Paul says that Christ Yahshua came into the society to deliver wrongdoers, of which I am first, but for this reason have I been shown mercy in order that first by me would Yahshua Christ exhibit all forbearance? He does not say, I am first, because he feels that his sins are the worst sins of all time. But rather, he says, I am first, because he was the first of all those who sinned grievously against the body of Christ as it began to form with the spread of the gospel. But even with the magnitude of his sin, he was brought to an awakening and granted a greater magnitude of mercy, not only being forgiven upon his repentance, but then being assigned a significant role in its ministry. So Paul uses his own experience as a type or model 
of the degree to which a man can sin and be forgiven and granted the mercy of God. And in verse 17 he says, Now to the king of the ages, the incorruptible, and one manuscript has immortal, the Codex Claromontanus, the incorruptible, invisible, only God, dignity and honor for eternity, truly, or amen. I prefer to translate the word literally as truly. In many places in the Gospel, Christ says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the word is amen. Amen, amen, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. Here the majority text, and therefore also the King James Version, has only wise God, rather than only God. Our text follows the 4th century Codex Sinaiticus, the 5th century Codex Alexandrinus, and the 6th century Codexes Claromontanus and Coislinianus. Evidently, the oldest manuscripts which originally contained the interpolation, the word wise, are those of the 9th century, the Codices Moscensis and Angelicus. We feel that the difference is significant. Paul is referring to Yahweh as the only God, and not merely the only wise God, as if there may have been others in competition, or perhaps as if Yahweh were more than one God. There is only one God, and he is the Father, and he is the Holy Spirit, and he is also Yahshua Christ the Son, or whatever else he in times past may have chosen for himself to be, such as the burning in a bush, or the fire on a mountain, or as Paul had said in his first epistle to the Corinthians, the rock in the desert, which was Christ. We have already illustrated that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, as the King James Version has it, Paul spoke of Christ and he said, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the nations, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Later, in chapter 6 of this epistle, Paul mentions, in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, Paul mentions the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. This phrase, King of kings, is used in reference to God or Christ on only two other occasions, both of which appear in a revelation where Yahshua Christ claims the title for himself. It is his revelation. Therefore, he must be the king of the ages to whom Paul refers here. And he must be Yahweh manifest in the flesh, as Paul explains later in this epistle. Yahshua, or Jesus Christ, is God. And Paul, calling Christ the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, over 30 years before the revelation was given to John, it is also evident that he too was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Because the phrase King of Kings does not appear in reference to Yahweh in the Old Testament. It appears three times in reference to earthly rulers, 
but it only appears three times in the New Testament, and the first is here. And in each place it refers to Christ. Verse 18. I commit this command to you, child Timothy, in accordance with those prophecies which have led the way before you, that by them you may soldier a good battle, having faith and a good conscience, which refusing to accept, some have been shipwrecked in regard to the faith. According to Liddell and Scott, the verb nauageo, which is to suffer shipwreck, was used metaphorically of persons and lives from classical times. The command being committed to Timothy is the command which Paul began speaking of in verse 3 concerning the management of the family of Yahweh. And here Paul states that such management, passed on to Timothy as well, is passed on in accordance with those prophecies which have led the way before him. That must be a reference to the words of the prophets of the Old Testament and the many promises therein which describe the purpose of the gospel as a call for reconciliation between Yahweh and the cast-off children of Israel. There is no place in the prophets where such a commission will be granted to or for any people other than the children of Israel. As it says in Isaiah chapter 52, a prophecy of the gospel of Christ for the children of Israel. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, the children of Israel collectively, Thy God reigneth. Yahshua Christ is God, and the gospel is for Israel. Yahshua Christ is that same God as Yahweh, the Old Testament God, the only God. And the first understanding of the mystery of godliness is that God was manifest in the flesh. The ministry of Paul, and therefore of Timothy, must be in accordance with those prophecies which have led the way before you. And therefore Yahweh is indeed the Savior of Israel since the prophecies only concern the children of Israel. There are no truths in Scripture that can stand in contradiction to these. Of those who have been shipwrecked regarding the faith, Paul says, of which are Hymenaeus and Alexandrus, whom I have surrendered to the adversary in order that they would be disciplined not to blaspheme. The word adversary may have been rendered as Satan, where I have opted to translate the Hebrew word. As Paul demonstrates in his first epistle to the Corinthians, Christians are commanded to deliver sinners to the adversary by putting them out of the Christian assembly, leaving them to the devices of the world and at the mercy of the world. There, the whole world which lies under the power of the wicked one. There, speaking of a fornicator, whom he esteemed as an unrepentant sinner, Paul instructed the Corinthians 
to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Telling them that Yahweh judges such sinners, he commands them to put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Christians should still think in these same terms, that those who reject Christ and remain in their sins should be put out of the Christian assembly and relegated to the world where they shall await the judgment of God. These men, Hymenaeus and Alexandros, Paul surrendered to the adversary, hoping that God judges them. And when they die, they will take the lesson not to blaspheme with them in the spirit when it's saved in the day of Christ. Thank you for listening. This concludes our presentation of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel and good night. Tomorrow night we hope to be here with Don Fox for an end times update. That's the title of the program. I pray that our internet is sufficient to do the interview. Otherwise I'll have to come up with something else real quick or simply for the first time in eight years, maybe nine years, cancel a program. I would hate to do that. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. We'll be here tomorrow, God willing, and good night. Mm-hmm.